I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And if there's anything we've learned over the last year, it's that it's not enough to get important information right. You have to communicate that information successfully too. Because if the data you need to share isn't being heard by the very people that need to hear it, it may as well not exist. Our guest this week has specialized in teaching and advocating for effective science communication. Sarah Mojarad is a lecturer at the University of Southern California, where she teaches communication courses to students in engineering and science disciplines. Her areas of expertise are in social media, science communication, and misinformation. Sarah conducts misinformation and disinformation workshops through USC's Election Cybersecurity Initiative, a project funded by Google and the Annenberg Foundation. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Now, to start, I just want to give our guests a little bit of your background. You've got a BA in psychology from Boston University and an MS in communication from Northeastern University. Your focus on social media began about six years ago when you started developing and teaching a course called Social Media for Scientists. Now, to use a storytelling term, what was the inciting incident that initially drew you to becoming interested in science communication specifically and developing your first course? It's fun to go back and think about this. At the time, I was working at Caltech, and I was in an administrative role in the Department of Chemical Engineering there. And I ended up collaborating with a professor who is in chemical engineering, and he was the one who originally suggested that we collaborate on a communication-based course. And his reasoning for that was oftentimes the required writing and oral communication courses were something that students just dreaded. And not only that, they weren't modernized to include social media. So when I was getting my master's, I actually minored or specialized in social media. So I was able to bring that to the course and we collaborated on it and I had full control of the content and the curriculum. I took it and I ran with it. And what was so unique about this partnership on this course was that I was bringing my expertise in communications and he was bringing his expertise in science. So we really had these unique perspectives for the course. And I don't think there's a course quite like this anywhere else in the world. You mentioned that it was a course that students were dreading partially because of how outdated it was. For someone who's not familiar with your field explicitly, I didn't go through those courses myself. And for the audience, in what ways was scientific communications out of date when you came on board six years ago? And in what ways did you go about updating it? Yeah, so I should clarify. Students who were getting their undergraduate degrees, they are required based off of their GE requirements that they have to complete communication courses. So we were talking about the required oral communication, the required written communication courses. The course that we developed together is actually not, it doesn't fit that criteria. So students were taking my course because they were interested in doing so. And so I had a mix of students who were in undergrad and graduate school. One of the major reasons I wanted to talk with you today, it's kind of almost a two-parter with the conversation I recently had with Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is an infectious diseases professor at the University of California, San Francisco. And one of the things that she and I touched on in her talk was just how much misinformation there was around COVID-19 vaccines and how much pessimism and kind of cynicism that that misinformation led to. And this is kind of your bread and butter, helping people communicate scientific concepts accurately and factually online when so much misinformation and even disinformation can kind of run rampant. So I feel like an uphill battle that scientists are facing today, kind of explicitly because of social media, is that it's easier for all of us to kind of confirm our own biases than ever before and to seek out and connect with others who share those biases. This then leads to bad information being shared and shared quickly and the fallacious thinking that because a lot of people agree with us, we must be on to something, right? Well, you know, I can't be wrong. I'm in a Facebook group with 10,000 other people who all think the same thing I do. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the thinking that leads to, especially before COVID-19, like these anti-vax movements here in California that result in surging cases of whooping cough, for instance. So how can medical professionals and scientists more broadly 
combat this misinformation when they're basically a snowball in an avalanche? Oh, so we're we're getting started with a with a tough question. I like it. <laughs> we're, we're diving right in, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot of layers to this one. First and foremost, one of the major issues with COVID nineteen and science communication is the fact that communicators are doing a very poor job of communicating that this is a novel virus, meaning that things and information are changing rapidly. So when people speak in absolutes about what we know now, and that changes a day, a week, a month from now, that introduces skepticism and distrust with the public. So finding a way to communicate that this is an ongoing process, that the scientific process is ongoing, and we should expect things to change, that's a good thing, I think is missing from a lot of the discussions and posts on social media. We hear these phrases, especially over the last year, that can come from a good place. Phrases like, trust the science, believe the science. And while, yes, it's important that we, especially in times of crisis, defer to people who have more expertise in a given field than we do, I think what happens with these phrases, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it, is that phrases like trust the science or believe the science foregoes the very real fact that it is an ongoing process and that it kind of almost eliminates or makes it harder for scientists to continuously correct themselves because any kind of correction can feel like, oh, they must have gotten it wrong the first time, when in fact, science is a everlasting discovery of new information. So how can scientists and medical professionals gain the trust of the public when people often want this kind of all or nothing information? People want to just say, I just want to trust the science, right? But science can be contradictory by its very nature. Yeah, I think it's also a factor that plays into this is the fact that when science is discussed in the news, it's always at a concluding point. It never describes the science as ongoing. It's usually just a discovery that's highlighted, and that's the end of it for the public. So with that, they don't recognize that this is an ongoing process, which is part of the reason why I think scientists and medical professionals really need to hammer that point in their communications. We just don't hear that enough. And we see it on the news too. Just, I mean, in the last year, how many times have you heard reporters put folks in STEM and medicine in these positions where they're asking for absolute answers right now? And the people who are conducting the science communication, they fall right into that trap. They give an absolute answer. And that's when things go wrong and it comes back and the audience says, okay, well, what happened here? It should be expected. And I just think that we really need to think through this and also look at other countries, what they do right, why science is trusted in other places in the world. And there's so much mistrust here in the US. Yes, that actually dovetails nicely into a presentation that you gave on your YouTube channel last year that was entitled Communicating Science on Social Media, in which you show that Americans' confidence that scientists act in the public interest was up year over year from 2016 through 2019, reaching a high of 87% of people answering yes to the statement in 2019. Do we have any data? Do you know what the statistic says now in light of everything that has happened over the last year? Yeah, Pew has published some interesting data in this area. And they looked at how trust was being perceived with the public and around COVID-19, especially and trust with the military, with physicians, with doctors. And so it's really fascinating. I just don't want to pretend to quote it right now and get something incorrect. Of course. Yeah, no problem at all. And I can always link to those studies in the show notes if you want to pass them along to me. I'll make sure that listeners can read them while they're listening to our talk. But yeah, you know what? It reminds me of a photo that my mom took last summer. My parents live up in Northern California, and my mom had taken a photo of a news report that she had seen in somewhere like June or July. Mm-hmm. And it really, I think, kind of speaks to a point you made earlier it was this medical guidance that was going out over the Bay Area. And it said something to the effect of social gatherings of no more than six people are allowed, funerals of no more than 12 people are allowed, and demonstrations of no more than 100 people are allowed. Yep. And she followed it with a text that was like, I don't know what's real anymore. I just, I wonder, it just, it concerns me as someone who is very interested in accurate scientific data, who believes that the sciences and the medical community are like an invaluable part of our society. Mm-hmm. It just worries me about the damage that's been done over the last year for a lot of people it might take a very long time to kind of repair. I agree. I agree. And it's over every single topic too: social gatherings, mask wearing. The CDC recently came out and said double mask. 
and we're struggling to get people to even wear one mask. So things like that really bring out a lot of concern. And for the scientific community to try and shun that and say, oh, don't worry about that, don't question that is very frustrating because these are really valid concerns. And the whole thing about protests and demonstrations, there being about 100 people, like that article said, that all has to do not with the science, but with civil liberties. So I think if that piece was better communicated too, people would understand why they're saying that. But of course, we don't really read that. Yes. How can we use or how can medical professionals, I keep saying we, like mm-hmm. I'm not even part of this community. How can scientific professionals, who I am very much not one, use social media, use their media appearances to kind of push back on these kind of boxes that the news want to stuff science into, right? Because if we look back at last year, there were medical professionals advocating against mask wearing in March and April of 2020 mm-hmm. when they knew masks were effective at stopping the spread. And then now when medical professionals know full well how effective these vaccines are, like I discussed with Dr. Gandhi, they seem to be messaging overly pessimistic, overly cautious messaging that doesn't really match up with the science either. And it feels like while this messaging can come from a really good place, I can understand that their message behind masks last year was to make sure that medical professionals were able to get their own masks quickly enough before the supply ran dry. Mm -hmm. But then that can have a cascading effect. So I know it feels like I'm asking you the same question over and over again, but I'm just trying to figure out how we can make space for scientific professionals to work with our media to more accurately present the case to the public. I think media training can really help with that. And every university has these really great media departments and communication departments that help faculty in particular do those types of interviews. So that's a good place to start. The thing, too, that was really frustrating about last year and how things have shifted so much on social media is the amount of shaming that comes across with the messaging. I think that if people were able to get away from that, that would improve things significantly and increase trust. Because with the issue last year in March and April, what we saw is, yeah, those were legitimate concerns that folks wanted to make sure that medical professionals had the equipment that they needed. But shaming people into abiding by what they wanted is not the way to go. That's where you create a lot of animosity and people get upset. That's why they say six months later, oh, the messaging has shifted. You're shaming us if we want to wear masks early into the pandemic. And then you're shaming us when we don't want it six months later. So it gets very confusing. And I think there's all this politicization that is happening on top of the data that's being distributed, right? Our trust in science communication seems to be increasingly split across party lines. And this kind of leads people of opposed ideological leanings to be incorrect in different ways. For instance, I recently saw a study that showed that people who identify as left-wing are more likely to vastly overestimate the infection fatality ratio of COVID-19 than Republicans but that Republicans are more likely to underestimate the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccinations. So what can medical professionals do in their own way to kind of depoliticize their data and fight back against partisan misinformation so that scientific communication can be absorbed equally by both sides? That's a really difficult question to respond to. I think the easy route to go is considering a one-on-one discussion or maybe something that's not necessarily broadcasted through television or social media. And through those types of avenues, through these one-on-one conversations or discussions with a few people where trust has been formed, it's as simple as acknowledging that there's accuracies on both sides and that while neither side has it perfect, there are accuracies on both sides, and we need to find a way to, to have common ground with these discussions, especially when it's impacting our health. You know, I, I had a guest on Quill Robinson. He's the vice president of government affairs for the American Conservation Coalition, which is a conservative organization dedicated to addressing climate change. And during our talk, he discussed the importance of having sympathetic and relatable spokespeople delivering information to audiences. So in his case, he was discussing the mismatch between what he saw as a left climate change messenger speaking dismissively of conservative voters in coal country, let's say, Mm -hmm. who then became wary and dismissive of climate change as a topic more broadly, and how ACC was hoping to reach conservatives with a scientifically accurate message that was also mindful to not speak down to the concerns of their audience, right? Mm -hmm. 
I imagine you probably have seen versions of this within the scientific and medical communications field. Mm -hmm. Are there resources for people who might be on one or the other side of the aisle where they can find like a sympathetic spokesperson who will address their concerns in a way that acknowledges their political leanings, let's say? I don't know one off the top of my head, but bringing up this climate change, I think is an important point because it's about finding a science communicator who really understands their audience. I'm sure you've heard over and over again in SciComm, it's know your audience. But even with that advice, I think a lot of science communicators don't really understand what it means. So in this case, if we go with this example of climate change, understanding that folks who work in the Gulf are fishing and things like that, they aren't going to care about the polar bears. What they're going to care about is every year if they're making enough money to support their families. That is one way that you can know your audience and really figuring out what their perspective is and how things like climate change are going to impact their day-to-day lives. I think we really struggle with that. And there's a huge disconnect, especially with academia and the average person who is not in academia. And so we really need to get around that, build trust with our audiences and get to know our audiences. Communication shouldn't just be one-sided. It has to be a conversation. That point about the polar bears, <laughs> I think it's no, it's really instructive because the immediacy of something can have a big impact on how we absorb the information. Yeah, I try to consider myself a pretty sympathetic, empathetic guy. But if someone is talking to me about something that is happening 6,000 miles away, I'm going to absorb it much differently than if you were to tell me, oh my gosh, there's a very real chance it's going to happen here and now right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's something like climate change or, you know, some South African COVID variant. I think these things matter, being able to relate them to the individual experience and the local experience in a way that people can kind of take an abstract idea and make it much more concrete. Yep. And that takes time. That takes more time than just being able to say, this is, this is impacting the polar bears and getting to know your audience. There's a certain investment that goes along with it. Yeah. And you mentioned in that same presentation, communicating science on social media, that there are some science professionals that are dedicating their entire social media presence to debunking misinformation online. Mm -hmm. The example that you gave is a chemical engineer and food scientist who goes by the online handle Food Science Babe, who uses Instagram, Facebook, Twitter to debunk misinformation around food science. But this kind of full-time advocacy doesn't feel sustainable for the average scientific professional who, as you know, has a day job that involves hours of either research or patient care and so on. So based on your experience in this industry, what are some long-term solutions here? Is it worthwhile to fund professional organizations whose sole purpose is disseminating accurate information on social media all day, every day? Are there organizations that are already dedicated to this cause? And how can we monetize the debunking work that professionals are doing in their free time for free? This is a great question. And I love talking about this topic because there's a few different ways that this can be addressed. The biggest and I think easiest way, at least in discussing it in in concept, is that academia rewards this. Because I think that every year when I fill out my annual faculty review, there isn't a section on science communication. And that's true for 99% of the universities in the United States. Wow. We're starting to see that a couple of universities are changing the approach that they do and actually valuing science communication, but it's still not considered a key component in what our job descriptions are. So I think valuing science communication, and then also recognizing that this takes a certain amount of skill and the huge time commitment that goes into it would change things significantly. I think that a lot of universities are struggling with their understanding of social media-based science communication. And then there's an amount of risk that goes with it because universities, companies, they want to protect their brand, but sometimes If, say, a science communicator is discussing vaccines, you can get the anti-vax movement that's contacting a university, messing up people's online reviews on Yelp and things like that, that impacts their businesses. So unfortunately, it can get a little bit ugly based off of the topics. But if more employers and universities really saw the value and supported the people who are doing the communications, I think it would be a huge shift and more people would be involved with it as well. The second thing is with these societies and 
associations, they are starting to value this. And I'm seeing it because the number of places that are reaching out to me to conduct workshops, panels, things like that has grown significantly in the last five years. So I think that there's this awareness now and these different organizations and societies are starting to put a focus on that. So it's going to be really interesting to see five years from now how far this goes. So that I'm pretty optimistic about. And even with the universities too, I'll say that it takes a long time for change to go through the process. But the fact that a couple schools are starting to do that is pretty exciting. That is really exciting. And it's heartening because I feel like this needs to become a key component rapidly because otherwise it feels like there's like a fire outside the building that could risk engulfing it because like we've discussed earlier in our talk, there is just so much, just wave after wave of disinformation around just pick any scientific topic, food chemistry, nutrition, climate, medicine, pick the scientific field. And there are people who think they know it all. And I want to talk about a clubhouse conversation that you listen to that kind of gets at exactly this point. And it's heartening to hear that academia is finally catching up to this because it feels like a tidal wave that is just going to overtake them if they're not careful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is becoming a a problem that people can't ignore. When I started talking about conspiracy theories, misinformation and disinformation, when I was first getting started, this was such a small component of the course I teach. Now, every year that course evolves because our relationships with social media changes. But yeah, this is now something that's ingrained in almost every module of my course. And I think that it's only going to get worse from here. So we need as many people all hands on deck as we can with this. Yes. And let's talk about that fateful clubhouse conversation (laughs) you overheard. So I've taken some of what you had a tweet thread on it, which I'll link in the show notes. I pulled some of what you've written and I want to just read it out here so that the audience has some context. Okay. And then I want to get your thoughts on it. So you wrote, quote, I've been spending a lot of time on clubhouse recently. On a two hour drive earlier this week, I listened to a bunch of naturopaths discuss, quote, autoimmune disease, herbs and vitamins, end quote. One naturopath doctor initially introduced himself as a, quote, licensed medical naturopathic doctor. Later, he referred to himself as a licensed medical doctor. No one corrected him or clarified. A lot of the folks on stage claimed expertise in oncology, end quote. And then later in the thread, you noted, quote, one naturopath even told a patient who was recently diagnosed with stage two breast cancer that he felt his mother would have survived her breast cancer had there been a naturopath overseeing the medical team, end quote. And as you offered your thoughts, you wrote, quote, the naturopaths were clearly outside their scope of practice, but the club had 150 plus people for two hours because one, patients felt like they were being heard. Two, they felt like they were receiving valuable free medical advice. Three, they likely did not understand ND versus MD slash DO, which are different medical licensees, end quote. And I feel like just reading that, I feel like numbers one and two are especially crucial insights on your part because I've never had anything as bad as cancer befall me personally, but there have been times where I've left a doctor's visit. Usually I'm scheduled into an already packed day. I get the doctor's attention for 15 minutes and I leave still feeling anxious and unsure of what my next steps are. And getting in touch with my doctor is difficult. It can take days for me to hear back from them because they're swamped. So while oncology advice from naturopaths in a clubhouse room clearly isn't the answer, It feels like it's speaking to a real problem in our healthcare system specifically, which is a lack of quality care and time. I mean, you're with the doctor for 15 minutes, 30 minutes if you're lucky, every few weeks if you have an ongoing thing like cancer, let's say. But your illness is with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and your mind can be racing. So how can the medical industry, how can SCICOM help address this need? So I think that the issue isn't necessarily with the medical professionals themselves. It's the system where they work because every hospital works this way. They work off of efficiency. So if they can have several patients jammed into a single hour, then they're going to do that. That's where the issue lies. It's not that the hospitalists don't want to be spending time with us. They do. They want to be providing high-level care. It's just that they are burning out on what the requirements are from the hospital. And so it's really unfortunate because if we think about what medicine was like 15, 20 years ago, that was a very different experience as a patient. So 
I think that's where SciComm comes into play because people are turning to social media, they're turning to the internet for information to fill in those gaps. So (laughs) I think at the end of that thread, or it might have been another one where I said, we really need you on there. There's a lot of bad information. And that's why you need to be there. And it can be having discussions with one another about these common questions and common things that come up within your your experiences with patients, if patient after patient is asking the same types of questions, that's an opportunity for a discussion on Clubhouse. And these things really take off because then patients can take that information to their appointments and be able to have these conversations in a more informed way. So building that trust and really making that space available is what social media should be all about. So these naturopaths, they do it, they do it well. And if you haven't been on Clubhouse to listen to some of these things, it's worth checking out their profiles too. Are you on Clubhouse? I've downloaded it. Okay. (laughs) I'm technically on it. I haven't actually ventured into it because I'm afraid that it's just going to suck up all my time. I mean, I'm a talker. I have a podcast. And my fear Mm -hmm. is that if I get on Clubhouse, I'm just, I feel like I'm going to spiral down to a point where I'm like chatting with strangers until 3 a.m., you know, when I should be sleeping. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'd be curious to see if that happens. It's just (laughs) a few weeks ago, it was a phenomenal platform. There were all of these really interesting conversations happening. And now it's just everybody's talking about NFTs, Bitcoin, marketing and advertising in a really just cringy way. Woof. And then you have these naturopaths. So I don't think that you will waste as much time as you think on it. But fingers crossed. Yeah. So it's worth checking out. Especially because if you, it doesn't matter any of the categories I just mentioned, if you go into somebody's profile and read through their description, they present themselves like they are an expert in their field. There's nobody else like them, but it's every single profile you visit. Mm. And with the naturopaths, they craft the language in such a way that you really think that they are experts in a medical discipline, right? when in fact, that's just not the case. Oh, I'm very used to that kind of (laughs) faux credentialism in the entertainment industry. I mean, everyone and their mom is a producer of some kind. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, it's like, oh, yeah, like a short film seven years ago. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't probably call yourself a movie producer if that's the case. But this might be a unsolvable question I'm about to ask, but I'm going to ask it. It feels like a lopsided war, right? Because medical professionals like actual legitimate doctors and scientists, especially in the medical profession, are bound by a set of rules and regulations that limit how much they can talk one-on-one or to a group of people who have questions about their own illnesses, right? Mm -hmm. But naturopaths and other people who, you know, (laughs) traffic in various forms of quackery are not limited by those same rules and regulations. And so if you've got a room full of people who purport to have medical expertise, but really don't, and can tell people anything they want to hear and can say ridiculous baloney like, oh, if my mother had a naturopath, she wouldn't have died from her cancer. But actual legitimate medical professionals can't offer that kind of personalized advice for obvious reasons. How can they wage a war when they're, they basically have their hands tied behind their back information-wise, right? So interestingly enough, naturopaths have their own licensing boards in each state. And what that guy did in the room saying that he was initially a naturopathic doctor and then later saying that he was a medical doctor violates those codes of ethics and rules. So if that had been recorded, if someone could show proof that that's happening, then he could be fined and have his license removed. This is something that happens frequently with social media posts and then also with advertising. So I went down a rabbit hole at the beginning of the pandemic and started looking into this because the naturopaths were also saying, boost your immune system with this or that, and that doesn't fly. So there are rules and people should be calling this out or reporting it, but we need to be very careful with how we do that because if these naturopaths are saying, here, I'm giving you so much of my time. I really want to hear what's going on with you. And I'm going to be providing you with custom, personalized advice on what to do. These science communicators, medical professionals, whoever it may be, coming in and berating these people, scolding them, things like that. 
is not going to go over well. It's just going to make an audience more sympathetic towards the pseudoscience. When it comes to medical or scientifically related rabbit holes or conspiracy theories, right? It's not uncommon. I think this, I can't remember exactly how I first came across your Twitter account, but I think it had something to do with one of the various rabbit holes you were going down and documenting on Twitter. Over the last year, what has been one of or some of the kind of rabbit holes you've gone down that I don't know if entertain is the right word, maybe shocked, frightened you. What are some things that you've discovered when you've kind of really burrowed down into some of these communities? Just kind of a general question, because you have investigated so much of this stuff to such a great extent. (laughs) I feel like I don't think I could do what you could do because I fear that I would get lost in the forest and wouldn't be able to trace my own breadcrumbs back (laughs) to, to like a normal, sane life. But what are some of the things that you've learned as you've gone down these rabbit holes? It's been so fascinating. It's been so much fun. I think the one that has been most concerning and that needs more awareness are these, again, it's the naturopaths, (laughs) what they do, how they advertise and work across different borders. So for instance, there's a naturopath who I think is based in Michigan and he'll hop over the border in Canada and do these workshops on stem cells. And he's very convincing on how this stem cell treatment can cure all these diseases and things like that. So just come across the border, come to my clinic, and we can get you started with that. So I don't know if you've had a chance to view that one, but I have a YouTube video on him. And then if you go down south, actually right here in Southern California, what they're doing is recruiting people to San Diego. And then they have a concierge service where they bring people across the border to Tijuana, or they fly with them to Puerto Vallarta. And they have... Oh my God. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. So to go through the details and see how those things operate is pretty fascinating. Wow. In fact, if you go on Google and type in Let's see, I'm going to do it right now. And while you're doing that, I think what is so dangerous about this stuff, right, is let's take the stem cell example you gave. Stem cell research, the stem cell field is legitimate. And so it sounds like a lot of what this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of basing a statement in a nugget of truth, or at least basing it in something that is truthful, and then using that as a like a leaping off point to go down something that is completely not medically accurate or safe. Am I getting that right? Yeah, more or less. Stem cell treatment is still something that's very new and the research is ongoing and it's used in very specific, selective ways. You should get administered by a naturopath, a chiropractor, or even just a a family medicine specialist. This is something that you should have to go through the FDA and a clinical trial in order to get access to. And I think the public doesn't really understand that. So folks who have gone through every different avenue to try and get help for their disease, their chronic pain, whatever it may be, are then going on Google, looking up these things. So yeah, if you type stem cell local, you're going to see it doesn't matter what city you're in, in the US, you're going to see stem cell centers, advanced stem cell therapy. There's just this one company that has spammed all over the US through Google search results, their service. And that's the one that I believe is recruiting people. And this is legal to do? I mean, it feels like there's more there's more regulations around vitamins than it seems like there is around this industry you're speaking on. It's a legal loophole. So there was a stem cell clinic in San Diego that was operating and doing some really sketchy things. They got shut down by the FDA. So instead, what they did was some of the employees they started a new company. And this is the one that is bringing people across the border. And I think the reason why it's okay is because they brand it as a concierge service. So they can't say... You know. <laughs> I'm an escort, like in Las Vegas. Yeah, I get Exactly. It. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. So they're, they're crafty. <laughs> Indeed, they are. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I actually, when I see some of your very long rabbit hole tweet threads. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same reason why when my buddy, my buddy has a fascination with QAnon, not that he thinks it's real, but that he likes reading about it from like a almost 
this is insane and this is interesting to me, even though I don't believe any of it sort of thing. And he tries like sending me links like, dude, you will not believe it. This is just crazy. You have to read this stuff. And I'm like, I do not, <laughs> I do not even want to from like a fun, detached point of view. It feels like you're going to stare at the sun for too long. Yeah. I mean, I guess to pull it back, <laughs> to, to look for the silver lining here, are there ways in which SciComm professionals can combat this? Or is this more a matter for the government to intervene legally? Like, how do we get the word out that these concierge services are really just hoodwinking people? There are some people who are doing some work around this on social media, and they, they've been doing a great job with it. But I think the, the media really needs to amplify those folks. And the FDA needs to step in sooner. Unfortunately, the FDA can only do so much because there's only so many people who are working there. So they really depend on people like you and me, who when we see something like that on social media, we report it. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that you enjoy reading my rabbit holes because somebody from the FDA had actually read it. And this lawyer reached out, had emailed me and said, if you see anything else like that, please email me directly. Wow. So that was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's heartening. That's heartening. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I want to be sensitive to this next topic, but I know that just based on, again, following you on Twitter, that you're not unfamiliar with the kind of harassment that can come with working and discussing this field. Mm -hmm. What are some tips based on your own experience that you can offer to other people who want to get to the field of SciComm or who are medical professionals and want to be able to share their information and also protect themselves against online bullying, harassment, the kind of stuff that you've unfortunately had to deal with? What are ways in which people can protect themselves against this? I mean, I guess aside from just very liberally blocking people. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't mind diving into this because if it's going to help somebody avoid what I've experienced in the last year, then that's great. So one of the things I always recommend is people go online, get to know the platform and get to know the conversations that are currently going on. Because if you do that, then you'll be able to identify whether or not a topic has hot button issues and how that's going. Because if it's extremely contentious, if people are being attacked and having pylons, then that's something you really need to consider and whether or not that's a discussion you're willing to join. I really hate this because I I want people to be on social media. I want them to be communicating science. But at the same time, I don't want to scare them by talking about the real truth with online harassment. So I advise people now to go into it expecting that at some point, you are going to be harassed. And so expecting that and then hoping for the best and preparing can really help. So in order to prepare for online harassment, you have to figure out what your touch points are, where your weaknesses are. So I encourage people to Google themselves, see what search results pop up, and go through every single page that appears for you. Because sometimes on the second, third, fourth, or fifth page, really deep in there, you'll start to see that there are websites that crawl the internet and pull information about you. So your home address, your cell phone number, your family members, all of that stuff is conveniently in one place. And if you're not aware of that, and then all of a sudden, there's a pile on because you accidentally say the wrong thing, people can find that information and do crazy things. But luckily, those websites can all be removed, you can get your information taken down, and then the cached search results also removed. So that should be an ongoing thing. And then also using Google alerts to make sure that whenever your name comes up in search results, you know exactly what's being posted. And then it's it kind of depends case by case. But some employers, I think, can be really supportive if online harassment occurs. My employer, thankfully, they have resources to help people who are in a position like I am and just show support. So not every workplace is like that. So really considering how that's going to impact your your means of making income is a good place to start as well. And this is a really important piece as well. Having offline and online support groups, support systems, support networks, whatever you want to call it. Because if things get tough, then you want people to be there for you. I think it's really tough when going through online harassment 
that a lot of people don't understand what that's like. They don't relate to it. So they'll say things like, just log off. Don't worry about it. Just block it. But when someone's coming after your reputation and they are not letting up, like in my case, it's been a year (laughs) of harassment and cyber stalking from one person, then you want to defend your reputation because reputation is everything in this world. So sorry, I've gone off on a rant with this one, but it's very personal. No, I don't think it's a rant at all. No, I think this is incredibly important to talk about. I mean, I haven't gone through what you've gone through, but there have been times in which I've posted something on Twitter that upsets the wrong person who then retweets it. And then all of a sudden I'm getting inundated with just dozens and dozens of tweets that are just cruel and inappropriate and assumptive. And this is just a podcast that I do, right? It's not my job job, right? So I can only imagine the situation that you can find yourself in, especially when you're just trying to relay accurate information so that people get the the care that they need in a correct way, that people are scientifically informed, that people aren't being misled. And then as a result of you trying to do this, what I think is really good work, you're being subjected to this kind of harassment. And it's not right. And it is important that people who are going to be entering your field understand what they're getting into so that they can hopefully guard against the kind of things that have happened to you over the last year, which is so unfortunate. And I'm, and I'm sorry that it has happened to you in that way. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I just, I did exactly what you did, I think. Just saying these things, general advice, and people would take it very personally. And then when they took it personally, they would latch on to it. And that's how some of the harassment started. I had said initially, I think it was back in February of last year that, hey, I don't think it's a good idea to be making this comparison between the COVID-19 and the flu. Back when there was like 100 cases or something, and it was still in Wuhan, people were saying that just get the flu shot instead. And it seemed to be spreading. Of course, I don't know the science, but I was just watching this grow. And people didn't change that narrative. So a lot of people in the US were very concerned about that. And then to see science communicators saying, no, don't worry about it. It was really frustrating. And then the second incident that came up was with these TikTok videos. In April, there had just been so many of these cases where doctors were dancing, they were happy in the hallways of empty hospitals, yeah, wearing PPE, things like that saying, guys, this isn't a good idea. This is going to be problematic. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like those videos could be used in like every seminar you ever give ever again as a Mm -hmm. what not to do to effectively communicate on social media. Yeah, yeah. Think about how things age. So yeah, I appreciate you saying that the work I do is valued. Thank you. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, and it upsets me that this sort of thing happens because what social media does is not only does it The good side of social media is that it amplifies voices that need to be heard. But what it can also do is it empowers unhealthy people, right? Yeah. Because anyone who's going to stalk one individual around the internet, right? Whether it's you or someone else, right? I have other examples of this kind of behavior from other people Mm -hmm. who I know online. And all it takes is just someone to say one thing, right? An innocuous, impersonal thing that's not directed at anyone, that's trying to get out information to the public. And then it just takes one unhealthy person who's in a bad mental state for whatever they're working on, whatever they're working through in their life, to then make it their personal pet project to make a person's life living hell. And it's just this kind of power imbalance is so frustrating because it's not right. You know, like it's just, Mm -hmm. it's not right. And so I guess my last question would be for you before we move on from this, because I just think that if I don't ask you this as someone who's lived through it, I'll have wasted an opportunity to ask this question. Do you have any advice in terms of how someone can kind of emotionally and mentally handle this, right, when it happens to them? Because I imagine getting into this field, eventually it will happen to someone. And aside from just having a social network, obviously, that they can turn to in a time of need, like, has there been anything that you've been able to do over the last year as you've kind of had to acclimate to this? that you found is very helpful for your mental and emotional health when this happens to you. Have you read my Medium article, Online Harassment, Death by a Thousand Tweets? I've seen it. I haven't gotten the chance to, to read it just yet. You have a, a wide breadth of work, and I unfortunately <laughs> haven't gotten a chance to make it to that article yet, but I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. 
Okay. That's something that people have found very helpful because, and I'm sure you've seen over the last year, I've been very vulnerable and very honest and forthcoming about what it's like to experience online harassment. Yes. And that's because of the number of DMs I get from people who are saying, I'm going through this. I don't know what to do. Help me because nobody else understands. So I had to close my DMs because it was getting too overwhelming. I couldn't, I couldn't help more people than what I was doing. So when I say finding a support network, that really makes a huge difference. And then not only that, knowing when you have to throw in the towel, if things become too overwhelming, sometimes sometimes you can't win with online harassment. Sometimes you just have to say, I'm going to be the bigger person and I have to ignore this or, I don't know, unfortunately, take a break from social media either temporarily or permanently. There have been at least half a dozen people that I know who have had to leave social media because of online harassment. If that happens, I just want people who are listening to know that that doesn't make you weak. That doesn't make you giving up on things. It's you have to do what you need to do to protect yourself. And that's okay if it means leaving social media. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. People need to prioritize their own mental and emotional health. And, you know, I mean, before I started this podcast, I had already deactivated, deleted my Facebook account. I deleted, deactivated my personal Instagram. And I'm only back on social media to do this. And I completely agree with you. The most important thing that anyone should take care of is their mental and emotional well-being. And that is the win. If you can be in a healthy place mentally, that is more important in my view. And it sounds like you're on the same page here mm-hmm. than any kind of social media following, because what is it worth at the end of the day mm-hmm. if it's making you mentally unwell? Yeah. And people just chase the number of followers they have, having tweets go viral and things like that. But I think if you've never had a tweet go viral or had thousands of followers overnight, you don't understand what it's like to go through that. There's this new pressure that comes along with it. And not everyone is going to like you. So people often told me when I first was going through this online harassment that, oh, you need to grow a thick skin. And I don't. (laughs) Other people don't either. Uh, If it's nasty, then it's nasty. And I think saying things like that just allows the behavior to continue. Yes, I agree. It's putting the onus on the person who is the victim of the harassment rather than on the people who are doing the harassing. It's trying to strike a balance between obviously fostering resilience in people, right? There's going to be proverbial nicks and cuts that happen to us over the course of our lives. But that kind of messaging can put too much of an onus on the person who's going through something that is unjust rather than trying to shape society in such a way that lessens that kind of harassment in the first place. But as we enter the back end of our conversation, I kind of want to take us back to something a little more optimistic. And I do appreciate you sharing your experience with harassment and the advice that you've offered. And I'll definitely be linking that Medium article in the show notes so that people can read it, because I think it'll be a great resource for people. You've said regarding science professional social media presence, you've said that, quote, overwhelmingly, people are looking to identify with people versus concepts, end quote. And I think that that's a really good point, right? Encouraging them to think about ways that they can couple their personal and professional lives to garner trust with the public. What are some ways that professionals can kind of leverage this advice that you're offering in ways that come off as authentic rather than forced, right? Because sometimes if you do it the wrong way, it can feel a little bit pandery. So what are ways that you encourage people in SciComm to do this in a way that feels real? Well, so first of all, I, you know, I know that we touched on some really heavy topics in this episode, but overwhelmingly, I think social media is an excellent avenue for science communication. And there are so many positives associated with it. So I do want people to feel confident and like they can have impact on social media. Some of the ways that people can change the discussion is to invest time and effort into getting to know their audiences. I know I've said that before, but I see a lot of science communication that is just one-sided in the sense that people want to put out a scholarly article that they've just published and co-authored, but they don't want to explain the significance in a way that 
somebody like you or I who are outside of science can really understand. They don't want to put it into the context of what that means in the field itself. So figuring out these ways to relate to your audience and explain things in a way that they would understand is really good. But then also having this two-way discussion. So when people are leaving comments, wanting to know more, wanting to have things clarified, that those aren't just ignored. Those questions, those comments are feedback that if somebody's not understanding your key message, social media is great for that because you can take that feedback and apply it to the next thread you do. So I think being very strategic with how the tools are used can really shape science communication going forward. And those are the types of interactions and pieces of crucial information that people should focus on instead of viral posts and follower counts. Because I think if you are a science communicator is able to create a very effective channel with only 200 followers, but those 200 followers are really learning something, they really trust the communicator, that's so much more powerful and authentic than somebody with 200,000 followers who doesn't engage anyone and is just doing the posting for the follower accounts and not the actual people behind the screens, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, like a really large pond that's six inches deep versus a smaller one that's 10 feet deep, right? It's a completely different kind of engagement. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you said is really instructive in that, especially dovetailing off of what we were just talking about with harassment and kind of the darker side of user engagement. I think what you said is really great, which is oftentimes people who are genuine, audience members who are genuine and engaging with you, if you're doing the work of communicating scientific, medical, nutritional concepts online, people can ask really informed questions that can make you a better communicator. And those questions not only can be things that you can answer, right? Like just directly like, oh, I need a little more information about XYZ. Oh, let me answer that for you. Those questions in and of themselves like you were saying, can make your next thread, can make your next post, can make your next essay, right? Better, because now you'll be thinking about what that person just asked. Exactly. Well, that's great. (laughs) A little (laughs) sunshine, right? Yeah. Now, going to the audience, right? Going to the people like me, let's say, right? I don't have a science background. I have a a background in, in writing and filmmaking. How can the average person go about deciphering good info from bad And what are some things they can look for in the moment, right? When they come across information on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram, either red or green flags that can tell them like, hey, like be wary of this or this is good to go. And what are some more long-term resources, right? Either individuals on social media or organizations that curious individuals can rely on to provide accurate scientific information. So there are a lot of different ways that this can be approach. This is a question that always comes up. And again, this is a great one. So when you're looking on social media, there's this concept that was developed by first draft news that I like to refer to. And they they call it sheep. So think sheep when you're on social media. So let's break down what each letter in sheep means. S stands for source, which is, is it reliable information? And you can determine if it's reliable information by, you know, seeing if it's being posted or shared from other trusted sources. What's the history on this account? Is there an agenda? Is this a a brand new account that has no engagement? Is it longstanding? Is there a political lean to what's being posted? These are all things that can be considered when looking at different accounts on social media. And then E for evidence. So is there information to support the claims that are being made? And disinformation has actually become very persuasive and advanced every year. It's getting better and better. So when I say, is there information to support the claims, you need to make sure that you're checking for independent information. So they may be providing information that they they claim is evidence. But in fact, if you go check on Google or some other search engine and you see that it's conflicting information, then that's a red flag. And then emotion is a big one. How many times are you on social media and you're just mad or angry about what you're seeing? If that comes up, then it could be an indicator that you're reading a piece of misinformation or disinformation. A lot of that bad content 
is very, it's shareable and it gets a lot of attention because we have been conditioned to be upset about things, especially in the last year on social media. So it's for whatever reason, the positive news just doesn't get the amount of attention. And then pictures, are pictures being used to garner more attention than the story actually deserves? Pictures can make things seem much more politically charged, and they can do a lot more damage if they're paired with disinformation. So yeah, so that's the concept. It's sheep. Look at source, history, evidence, emotion, and pictures. <laughs> Very well said. Don't be a sheep. Yeah. Refer to sheep. Exactly. That's great. I mean, yeah, it's the good and bad, right, of our internet age. It's a shame that the average person on the internet needs to kind of play the role of junior reporter whenever they mm-hmm. encounter a YouTube video or a tweet or even a professional article. But the good part of that is, is that there is so much information out there and legitimate factual information is always just to Google away. So it's a shame that we all have to be like scientific gumshoes of a sort, but it's good to know that accurate information is there if you go looking for it. Yes, exactly. And if people want to learn more about this and where they can find resources to increase their social media literacy, RAND actually has a great database of tools I can give you the link to that so you can share it with your audience. Yeah, I'll make sure to share that link with people in the show notes because I think informing oneself is so important, especially after talking with Dr. Gandhi. It just, it really nailed home how important it is not only for scientific professionals to accurately relay information to the public in a non-politicized way, but also how important it is for us as consumers of this content and, and information to make sure that we're filtering it in a way that filters out the bad and filters in the good. Before I get to my last question that I ask every guest, is there anything that we haven't talked about regarding SciComm, regarding any of the topics we've discussed today that you want to elaborate on or just anything that you want to say before we get to our last question? I just want to make sure that that you feel heard and that you feel like you've said everything you've wanted to say on this topic. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, again, sometimes with social media, especially in the last year, Things can be pretty negative and tough. And there's a lot of reasons why people are afraid or don't want to go on social media to communicate science. I completely understand that. But I still want to encourage people to get out there and share their knowledge and their expertise with the world. Because if you're making a difference for one person and keeping them from believing misinformation on social media, then that's substantial impact. And I think people also need to realize that if they want to keep a small audience, they can do so. Not everything has to be driven by follower accounts. I know a lot of people who have been successful in keeping a small audience and really enjoying that experience. So, and if you're just getting started as well, experiment. First, get to know the space, understand the conversations, but experiment with your posts. Do some tweeting, make some videos go on Clubhouse, see what you like. It can be a very exciting experience when you're just getting started. So have fun with it. And to get to our final question that I ask everybody, and I think that it is kind of apropos to the talk that we've had today, we're limited, Sarah, as individuals in all kinds of ways, right? We're limited in our time, as we've discussed today, in our energy and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person in the world, every other group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There's not enough time. So is there someone or a group of people in your life, in the world at large right now, concrete or abstract, that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? That's a really great question. I like that a lot. I think I would want to offer empathy to the people who have been unable to speak about online harassment and just let them know that they're not alone. It can be a very isolating experience. And if you don't know anyone who's gone through it, you can feel like the harassers are right in what they're saying. But I just want people to know that if you're going through online harassment, you don't deserve it. And you are a good person. So hang in there and look for support. Well said. 
And I 100% co-sign. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the work that you're doing in disseminating good information and combating the bad stuff and the work that you're doing in helping other people in the scientific fields to communicate their information accurately. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. 